Thanks for joining us here on Texas Podcast and Blast. As I promised you, we have an exciting episode today. Uh, I hope you picked up on episode two that we just finished up with Clint Johnson talking about meat processing and how everybody can uh, enjoy not only the hunt of whitetail deer, but also plan that into the hunt, man. Make sure you know where you're, you're how you're going to take care of that carcass and, and the meat and where you're going to take it to enjoy all the uh, enjoyable products that can come out of those whitetails. But t- today we have a very I think relevant conversation to take place with a good friend of mine, uh, Brian Bourne with Fioki uh, Ammunition is on here. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for inviting me and thanks for having me. Well, thanks, man. Uh, just to kind of let everybody know, uh, you and I met when we lived in Huntsville, Texas, somewhere around eight or nine years ago, I believe you and I uh, got to kind of cross each other's paths. And uh, it was a, it was good to get to know you. And I know we enjoyed some good times there in Huntsville together. Yes, sir. Absolutely. It was, it was great to get to know you and, you know, both families and all that. And, and we lives change and we move on, but absolutely. You know, and, uh, and I will tell you this, you know, Brian's daughter uh, babysat our kids for a while and it was a, uh, uh, our kids turned out quite well, and we were appreciative of, of her help there. But, you know, Brian, when I met you, I quickly realized that you knew more about shotguns and shotgun shells than anybody else I had ever met. And uh, could you just kind of let everybody know your story of how you got into uh, the shotgun industry? And I'm, I'm starting it broad, and you can get as detailed as you like, but I mean, you have probably pulled the trigger on more shells than most people ever imagined in their lifetime. So kind of tell us, how you, how did you ever get started in this business? Well, it's funny you, you say that. I, I'm i going to throw this out first, and then I'll tell the story. When I first started shooting a clay target in 1988, I had a gentleman that myself and my father, and of course my father introduced me, he always looked at me and I always looked at him and I was like, how did you get so good? And he says, I've shot over a train car full of shotgun shells, Brian. Wow. So that, that makes an Argentina <laughs> dove hunt fail in comparison. If you think about a shot, a trailer load from a train car of shotgun shells, that's a lot of trigger pulls, man. Yes. And this, and this gentleman, of course, at that time, and this was, I was in high school. I graduated high school in 88. I think I started working at a gun club in 87. And the gentleman at that time, I won't name his name, but, and he was from Huntsville, but uh, he was 78 at that time. And of course, you know, by now it has, has passed on. Uh, sure. A, phenom- a phenomenal shotgun artist. Just, I mean, I was 16, 17 with eyes as big as the bottom of Coke, glass Coke bottles back then watching <laughs> him shoot. Right. And, I, I, you know, I always thought in the back of my mind, I want to be that good. I want to be that good. Uh, and anyway, no, I, I started working at a gun club in high school and continued working through, oh, first two or three years of college, if I recall. And, and where then, of was, course, you know, where, life. Yeah, where did this, where ahead, were you at this no, where were you living at this time? Well, in high school, I was living in Conroe, Texas, which you're very okay. familiar with, just south of Hartsville. And uh, a gentleman opened a gun club out on uh, Highway 105 west of Conroe okay. Okay. towards Lake Conroe. And <clears throat> at that time, it was a two-lane highway. Now it's like a eight-lane, but that's neither here nor there. And I went to, my dad actually started, well, let me back up just a hair. Sorry. My sure. father was, was from Louisiana and he took, he introduced my brother and I to hunting when we were probably just over 10 years old. And we had Labradors and we duck hunted and we deer hunted. And that was our, that was dad's passion, so to speak, on the hunting side. Well, he and some gentlemen that he worked with and friends started shooting clay target league at a gun club. And, and again, my, please forgive me, I don't recall, but 87, 88. I graduated high okay. school in 88. Okay. And 
he invited me out there one time. He's like, why don't you come on? And I said, okay, well, I met the manager of the club and I shot a little bit and he's like, you want a job? I'm like, yep. And I worked there. Oh, I don't know how long and worked at another gun club and ended up managing a gun club in the early nineties, still while going through college. And of course I started shooting and the gentleman that was running the club at that time shot competition, American skeet. Okay. And in the, in the late eighties, American skeet and American trap or ATA trap, amateur trap shooting association, were the only games in town, so to speak, because sporting clays had really, I mean, that was like the first thought process of sporting clays. Right. And the reason being, and not to go into too much detail, but the reason being is in 1988, you didn't have a battery powered or a DC powered trap machine. Right. Everything was ran on 110. Right. And if you, you wanted to have a sporting clay shoot, you had extension cords running a whole lot of distance. But either either that or, people, or you had to spend a lot of money and put in the R V pedestals and put power outlets across your shooting range. And that was just well you couldn't justify that much and, money. No, no. Well and people did do that in some areas of the country and sure. you had hand traps hand traps where uh young high school boys like myself would sit there and throw targets all day. And uh, and then, of course, when the DC-powered trap machine or clay target machine, and the, the nickname is trap machine, be it right. sporting clay, ski, trap, but uh, came along, it really changed the industry. But anyway, long story short, I worked at a gun club for quite some time. Uh, graduated college and went to work for a distributor not in the industry for about two years, and then I went back to the gun club. Okay, so you got. Like I was a. So you got out. Go of ahead. The, I'm sorry. You got out of the shotgun business for a couple of years, and then got you found yourself coming back to, to it. Did, yeah, did I, I, I start, Absolutely, I started shooting tournaments, and I was. I don't know if this word's PC correct, but addicted. Sure. And now I'm 51 years old, and I'm still addicted. (laughs) So once you got Uh, a little taste of the competitive side of the the shooting industry, that was really what you were into. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that first gun club club I went to, the gentleman was a world champion that was running that club at the time. And he, he spent some time with me as well as that older gentleman, that shot a box car full of shells. Right. And I learned to shoot, shoot, play target competition rather quickly. Now, granted, we hunted, but I learned to shoot clay targets, and uh, I, I've been addicted ever since. I love it. Wow. I love so, shooting. I love shooting a shotgun. So when you started out, was it? Did you start out with an over and under? Or did you start out with a pump or an automatic, or what were those early days like? Did you? Did you just save your money I, up and start with the right gun, or like most of us, did you have to, did you have to uh, grow to that ability to have a good over and under in the competition? Oh no, back then you grew to it absolutely. I mean, my father had bought myself and my brother a Ted Williams Special semi-automatic from. Oh uh, man. Oh my gosh, I don't remember if it was Woolworth or. It was probably Woolworth or Sears. Yeah, Sears. It was Sears. You're, you are yeah. correct. Yes. Yeah. And we had a Ted Williams special semi-automatic. I, my brother, who's a year older than I, had the 12 gauge, and my father bought me a 20 gauge. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And my dad shot a Browning Satori yes. over and under. And that was our hunting gun, and that's what we started shooting clays with. Wow. You know and, the first. Uh, the first 12 gauge that I ever could call my own was a Savage pump and it had a straight barrel, Brian. It did not have a choke on that barrel. And I mean, it just spread, it spread pellets about as wide as you could. So I thought I was a great shot when I went duck hunting because I could hit everything because there was nothing to, there was no grouping coming out of that barrel, but that was the, it was a hand-me-down from my uncle. 
And so that old Savage yeah. was the first thing that I ever learned to shoulder in terms of a shotgun and until my parents brought, bought me an 870 pump when I was in college. So I get it, man. I get it. So, oh, I mean, that's, that's great. That's great experiences. I bought my first shotgun on my own when I turned 18 in 88. Right. And that was on a Reming, uh, Remington 1100 sure. 12 gauge. Sure. Do you still have that it? Was to, I still have it in the safe. Yes. Wow. That's a treasure, man. That's a treasure. And so, so you started working in these gun clubs and, when you say you were shooting competitively, give everybody an idea. How how many rounds do you think you were shooting a year when you were hot and heavy in the competition side of things? Oh, I, I competed. Let's see. I competed pretty seriously as a young, well, I say youngster, <laughs> early 20s, uh, late <laughs> teens, early 20s. Right. Uh, I probably shot anywhere from 800 to 1,500 shells a week when the weather was good. Wow. Okay, just to put that in perspective, because most folks will be listening to this podcast, uh, that's an annual number of shotgun shells they pull the trigger on. So you're saying weekly, you were at the range, and every chance you had to shoot around, you were jumping in there, and you were getting your, you were getting your shots out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So when did and granted, so go ahead. Well, back then, I mean, well, I say back then, and there's still people that do so, but it was much more cost effective to reload, right? Your own shotgun shells, and I, right. I reloaded, and uh, my father kind of got out of it, and ended up, and my brother went on his way, went to work, and got married, and you know, life changes, and he went a different direction, and. I stuck to it, and I—I I mean, I was reloading constantly. And my father, well, before he passed, he always said, "Well, those clay targets kept Brian out of the bars." <laughs> and so, uh, just a, a healthy, competitive uh, hobby, and what turned into an occupation kept you out of some of the trouble that you might have been getting into. Is what I hear. Well, absolutely. Some of the normal <laughs> of life, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, um, I get it. But I, uh, I love, I loved it. I, and yes, I'm very blessed, and I'm not saying that lightly because who would have figured that that led me to a career path? Right, and so when, and, when you got, so when you got out of the the gun club side of things, when did you move into the sales side of the business? Well, first I went into, well, actually, you know, the, the uh, gun club changed ownership and it moved to Houston and I moved with it. And the gentleman that had purchased it opened a retail store with it. And okay. so I got my earliest experience in the retail business of guns, ammo, reloading supplies, etc. I mean, I can remember... I mean, I know this is silly, but I can just remember, and now it kind of looks back as it's fun, but unloading a 18-wheeler full of shotgun shells by hand because the owner didn't have a forklift at the time. Oh, and, my. And, uh, of course, I, I was in a lot better shape in 89, <laughs> 90 than I, I am in 21. But, um, you know, uh, so we really got – I mean, yes, there was gun club, but the retail business was the profit center and sure. uh we started selling guns and ammo not just shot shells center fire etc and reloading components reloaders uh, accessories etc right and right, right. Uh, of course it, it was much simpler in the late 80s early 90s than it than it has been since the 2000s because uh you didn't have all the imports but neither here nor there. That's where I got my first taste of retail. And after I graduated college, I uh, met an old shooting buddy that I met at the gun club that said, I'm about to open a store. And I won't name the store because uh, there's probably a lot of people listening that know it because it is online. Sure. And it's from, Hans it's from Huntsville. Right. And 
before he even built the first wall. And honestly, I'm trying to remember how we ran into each other, but, um, you know, we, he asked me if I had any interest and I said, well, sure. And we went to work and built a business and I was in retail and of course at that time online was coming and we went online and continued to shoot, continued to compete, continued to hunt and uh, was in that side of the industry as far as years probably the most of my career and then one of my vendors in 2014 or 15 I I don't recall exactly now but called me and said are you said are you tired of retail and I said absolutely (laughs) that's a lot of that's a lot of hours standing up is what it is Well, it's it's a lot of consumers, and I mean, hey, I'm ignorant on how to build a car, right? But I can I can build a shotgun shell. Sure. Um, you know, consumers. Well, first and foremost, let me clarify something. Ignorance is not a bad word. Correct. That's, it, 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 that's lack of knowledge. It's the inno- it's the innocence of not knowing, as my high school English teacher taught me. There you go. That's a, that's so. Oh, I love the way you said that, actually. Yeah, he was um, a smart guy. <laughs> uh, you know, they're ignorant, and they come in, and they ask a lot of questions. So when you're in retail, you're answering questions all the time, da da da, da. You're busy. you got things to do, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that one of my manufacturers that I was buying from for years said, are you tired of retail? And I said, absolutely. And he says, well, <laughs> got an offer for you. And again, blessed. And uh, moved away and went to work for a manufacturer of shotgun shells. Learned the trade, learned the manufacturing side, um, the uh, corporate side more so. Um, And in that, met people in the industry. And then uh, again, just stumbled met a gentleman from well I had met him because a lot of people don't realize this and I'll tell everybody that's out there shooting and buying ammo you know ammo manufacturers exchange or not exchange they purchase components from other manufacturers right and that's how I that's how I met the gentleman at Fiocchi and uh, actually we 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 did business for three years, and then we were in Germany at the IWA show, which is basically Europe's shot show. Okay, and, pretty big uh, deal. With, it's quite large. It's in Nuremberg, Germany. Well, prior to the COVID pandemic, it's in Nuremberg, Ger- Germany every year. Right. And it's a ph- phenomenal show. It's my favorite show. Uh and uh, ran into him, and he said, hey, uh, you know, I don't know a whole lot about the shot shell side, and I hear you do a whole lot more than I do, and would you have any interest moving to Ozark, Missouri? And, you know, my daughter had started college, and I was single, and it okay. wasn't that hard. It wasn't, it wasn't look like up and transplanting a, a family. Correct. And uh, I drove to Ozark, and I got to tell this story. I'm sorry. I've just got to. Go right ahead. No, tell it. Now, Matt, you're a hunter, and I know this. I I, I drive. uh, When I went to work for the other manufacturer, I was living in Dallas, Texas, and I was living just on the outskirts, the west side of the city, and I hadn't hunted in years. I grew up hunting, um, but shot a lot of clay targets because there's a lot of opportunities to shoot clay targets in the state of texas right but i drove i drove up to ozark missouri and i hadn't been to missouri since i was probably oh i don't know 12 13 with the family going to branson and uh i drove in and i'm like oh my gosh this is gorgeous i mean this is beautiful so i drive into the driveway of the fiocchi factory and it's about 7 30 in the morning and 
three turkeys cross the road. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh. And I drive a little further. And it's about half a mile from the main thoroughfare where the gate is down to the offices at this time. Right. You realize you, and, weren't, in, you weren't in the city of Dallas anymore. I was not in the city of Dallas anymore. And uh, I spook a doe. <laughs> then I spook another doe. Oh, wow. Then I see some antlers. Yeah. And then I said, well, I said, well, I don't know what they're offering me, but I'm moving. <laughs> I mean, it, it was done. It was done right then. I mean, and, always, I'm, and I'm not lying. I'm not exaggerating. Always, I was like, I'm done. It's almost like the good Lord was saying, hey, Brian, wouldn't you like to see this every morning instead of that concrete jungle in the Metroplex? <laughs> and you, are, you are so correct. I mean, I, it's, it, Ozark, so Missouri is beautiful. Well, I'm glad you're getting to enjoy that. So you're with Fioki now, and, and what is your actual what is your actual position with Fioki? Remind me. My job, is, my title on paper is senior director of sales. And is that I am within, over within the U.S. or is that a global position? No, currently Fioki USA does not export. Okay, so that that's dealing with with our with our own country and so that's correct you know, that's so, i deal with all 50 states so what you just described for us is a 30-year life that went from working and managing a shooting center to getting into the retail side to growing a business there in the retail uh venue there in huntsville and that's where you and i met and i'm very familiar with that part of the story because uh we were buddies then and i got to see firsthand what you were doing and then you went to manufacture uh and then as most industries do manufacturers work closer alongside each other than most people from the outside realize and that's a pretty that's what i i remember my days in sales manufacturers align themselves a little closer than what people thought they would and here you are you find yourself at fioki and from all of your shooting and all of your knowledge of shotgun shells, uh, you spent your entire career around this one niche industry of shotguns and shotgun shells. I mean, I know you deal with rimfire and centerfire a little bit, but shotgun shells is still your main dish. Is that is that fair to say? That's very fair to say, and I'm not I'm not boasting. I, I sure no, I said I, it, I, not you. I, so. I, I, <laughs> I'm stu- I, I've studied it. I love it. And even our product manager, if a concept comes up for shotgun shells, he comes to me uh, and sits down with me and asks me and goes over what he's thinking. And he, he's brilliant. I mean, trust me, he, 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 he does a wonderful job. And, uh, yes, I know. I do <laughs> shotgun shells pr- pretty darn good. Well, and that's why I should be on the show because you know you've just done it longer and more and looked more into it than the average Joe. And so, in all of your shooting experience, let's transition a little bit. I get guys in the blind as I guide duck hunts here in Matagorda County, and they're always asking me how they can be more accurate wing shooters. Now, I know it's different from duck hunting to dove hunting to quail hunting to pheasant hunting. You know, the, the flight of the bird requires a different strategy. But when it just comes to bare bones shotgunning, what are some things that you have learned over the years that if guys will pay more attention to, they're going to be a better, they're going to be more successful in their shooting, whether it's clay targets or birds? I'll tell you exactly what that 78-year-old gentleman told me in 1987. What's that? He said, youngin, and he said, youngin, as he was chewing on a cigar. (laughs) uh, He said, you point a shotgun. You aim a rifle and pistol. Right. He said, never look at that barrel. Now that's the key right there. And so how can the human how can the human eyes focus on a a clay target, a duck, a pheasant, a goose at 30, 40, 50 yards, right. a chucker at eight 
18, four foot off the ground. Right. A grouse, a grouse in the thicket when they're looking at the barrel. The human eyes can't do that. Right. And so you can't all, get so focused on these, the... Keep, keep going. All these beads and sights on a shotgun barrel is a lot of great marketing. Sure. Sure. And I when agree I'm, with that. When I'm, I mean, everything's yeah, in constant motion. When I'm motion. shooting a shotgun... When I shoot a shotgun, and, and honestly, it took a long time to, to really do this. Uh-huh. I do not look at that barrel. I do not look at that barrel. I look at what I'm shooting at. And if you right. start looking at what you're shooting at, be it a clay, be it a bird, you see it so much better. The human right. brain is still today, human mind, what God blessed us with, is the fastest computer in the world. Correct. And I'm going to use this scenario. You've got a son in high school that plays football, correct? Correct. Okay. Now, I don't know what position he plays. I forget. You told me, but I apologize. I forget. Well, he's, he's left much tag. bigger than I am. Yeah, he's left tackle, but right now we have some injuries on the line, so he's having to play right tackle until that kid comes back. <laughs> okay, well let's 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 talk offense and let's talk quarterback. Okay. And you have you have a receiver running a quartering um, pattern. Right. That quarterback falls back, has the football in his hand, and he's staring at that receiver. Once he once he finds he's open and he throws the ball, he doesn't look at that receiver and say, okay, wait a minute, I need to lead that guy six feet, two inches, and throw the ball over that line right. so it's in the right place. Right, right, right. And I'll tell you another scenario. When there's been studies about this, professional baseball, the greatest hitters of all time, have mentally, subconsciously made a decision to swing the bat or not within less than a second right. of the arm swing of the pitcher. So they see even, I mean, as soon as that ball is basically coming out of the hand, they've made the conscious decision if that's going to be a ball that they're going to swing at or not is what you're saying. They, they've made a subconscious decision. Right. And to just make this a point, and not that, hey, look, there's some great wing shooters out there that can outshoot me in the, in the blind, but there's not a batter in the world that's successful that looks at the baseball bat. Right. Well They're said. looking at that ball. Well said. You know, and, and I can add to that, Brian. I've never, I mean, you never shared that scenario with me about how you point a shotgun, you shoot a rifle. But last weekend in the teal blind, you know, we had a category one hurricane here in Matagorda County. Birds kind of went squirrely in the marsh. And I told my guys, hey, you got to be ready. I mean, we're not going to have this. Watch them coming down on the deck like a mallard hunt. You know, it's going to be cut them, take them, and you better, have, you better be ready to go. Well, a bird came in kind of quartering off my right over the right side of the blind. And my hunter's like, that's too far. And I said, what's too far? He said, that teal. And I said, that's too far? And I didn't even see the bird, Brian. I just pulled my gun up and dropped it. And I promise you, I was not looking down that barrel with that quick of a reaction. <laughs> it's the, the, ones, the, ones, the hunters that I see miss most are the ones that get to kind of set the shot up and they think they're going to dial it in and they think too long, and then the, the bead and the, the, the barrel, as you say, gets in the way, and they don't hit anything. But it's the reactionary shots, because in, in, in reaction, we're doing exactly what you just described. We see the target, we pull up the gun, and we're shooting at the target. We're, we're pointing at that direction, and our mind is telling us how far to leave the bird. We're not doing a calculation on the bead, and I mean, that makes total sense. So... Absolutely. 
You wow. dial in a scope. You dial yep. in an optic. Yeah. You well, don't. You 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 don't want a shotgun. Well, they're they're in Missouri. They put some scopes on shotguns, don't they? That's a that's a uh, shotgun deer hunt state, isn't it? Um. um Are they slugging? Totally. No. Okay. Okay. No. I, I, no. 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 I just, I just knew that there in the Midwest there were some slug gun guys up there. We don't do that down here. But. You, uh, no, I know you don't in Texas, but no, you got to get a little further up. You got to get up Indiana, uh, you know, the smaller states. Missouri is still rifle. Uh, not to say there's not any slug hunters. I'm just saying sure. it's not mandatory or priority. Sure. And so. Pointing shotgun, don't try to aim it. If you're aiming it, you're spending way too much time focusing on the bat rather than the ball. Uh, I've never heard it said like that, but, dude, that makes total sense. And I hope the guys listening, next time they put a shotgun in their hands, they'll try to practice that a little bit more. And so in all your years of shooting, was there a was there a shooting course or was there a shooting center or a bird hunt that just stood out as one of the most fun locations or experiences of shooting you ever got to participate in? Oh, wow. Wow. Hmm. I, I, I've been so fortunate to, I mean, I've even shot bunker trap in Spain. Uh, that's, that's Spain, the country. That's not a, a small county in West Texas, right? No, that's Spain, the country. Okay, um, I was just pointing that out. <laughs> uh, not competition, though. That that was just uh, that was for fun, and it, right. and, and you know, but um, I, I I'll tell you, there's one that was a total different shotgun experience that I'll never forget, and that was hunting woodcock in Minnesota. In the thicket. Okay. Your shoot, your shooting window, your shooting windows are so small. Um, that was fun, but I I was I almost say was spoiled because my father got out of clay target shooting and got into raising and breeding and training with friends of the family and. Uh, English Springer Spaniels, right, and got and got into field trials, and sure. uh, Huntsville for a while there had three quite large during the winter time, uh, well fall and winter, excuse me, uh, English Springer field trials every year, and uh, my daughter got involved in running a dog. I remember that. I, I, I had, ne- I never had ambitions of training or working the dog, but I got invited to shoot the birds for the trial. So I got to shoot a lot of pheasants, right? A lot of, a lot of chucker. And I don't know if you ever heard of, uh, the one of the best experiences I ever had was I, I was shooting well and. Uh, got invited and, and you had to be invited because these people put a lot of effort time and money into their pets and their dogs mm-hmm. to an english to an english cocker field trial right and that's a that's a smaller that's a smaller community that you're talking about right there much smaller yes i mean they're just and, a fewer uh, number of breeders and trainers so it's a handful of folks and you're right they take you it very bet. seriously and make big investments and I got invited to be the lead, what they called the lead gun in that trial. And I had more fun doing that than shooting competition. And I did shoot well because I felt the pressure was on. Oh, there's <laughs> There's an expectation of the, the the judges and the handler of that dog. They need that bird to fall. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So that 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 I mean, there's there's quite a few of them. I, I and I won't go through all of them. No, I sure. Mean, 
I, I uh, you know, again, I started in the '80s in American Skeet, and I love that game. I love, I, I love all clay target games, but sure, that's all there. That's really all there was in that area of Texas in the late '80s through the early '90s, as sporting clays was just really taking. I mean, just starting, not even taking off, just starting, and. I practiced enough and worked at it enough. I got to shoot probably the last three years that I seriously competed in that game with the best in that game in history. And he's still the best in that game at the, in this day and time. And those memories are probably some of the best. Wow. And so and uh, very, very, very fortunate, very blessed. Just, you know, it's my passion, and I've been able to explore it my whole life. Well, and, you know, as they say, if you're getting to work with something you love, you never really go to work ever in your life. You're just waking up and doing what you want to do each day. So it, that's what's right. cool is that you've been able to enjoy this and continue to do it. So let me ask you the question that everybody's wanting to know, and I appreciate you coming on to talk about this. Like I said, I had some uh, teal hunters – during teal season and as we ran hunts they were all worried about their shells they were thankfully during teal season most guys like me we're still shooting shells from last year you know we have a case a case and a half uh set back and we just knocked the dust off and here we go but one guy showed up and i realized how just the situation we're in i had a customer show up with double b that's bb shot to shoot teal and i just told him buddy i hope you don't need to to, to open up that second box because it just tells us the shotgun shell is so hard to find. I'm getting texts from some of our college kids that enjoy hunting like you and I do. I'm getting calls just because I guess they think we know the answer because we're guides, but could you kind of shed some light on why shotgun shells are so hard to come by right now? Well, that's a, a a lengthy explanation to be true. Well, well we like truth. Uh, <laughs> you had the United States market. Typically, all manufacturers work out of a standing inventory. Right. In a normal business model. And we all, and I say all manufacturers, started the year of 2020 off with full warehouses and the supply chain. When I say supply chain for the people that are not in the industry or may have never been in manufacturing or not in wholesale, uh, you have a supply chain throughout the industry that supplies the retail stores where 85, 90% of the consumers are purchasing their product. Right. All of those channels were full because during the time of the previous president, there was not a fear of multiple things that drove consumers to purchase a considerable amount, uh, a considerable amount more of ammunition, which um, it all started with center fire. Right. Well, and that was firearms and ammunition, if I remember correctly. The, the the overall industry saw an increase when the anxieties of those political changes took place. Yeah, you just you just opened that door. I wasn't going to touch politics, but uh, well, yeah, not, I mean, you, you it's, it's, it's a factor we have to. We, you know, that is a factor <laughs> in this issue. So, so in 2020, all warehouses are full, and you here bet. we are. So 2020. First quarter 2020, and then all of a sudden, this little thing comes along called COVID, and the world lit up. Right. And then, of course, our new government started talking. Right. And, and you started having riots. Right. I believe, and I may be totally wrong, that the riots led to the most impressive influx of first-time firearm buyers 
mm-hmm. in the in United States history. Right. I think some of the numbers are anywhere from in the year of 2020, somewhere between seven million and eight million first-time firearm buyers purchased firearms in the United States. Now wow. let's just take that number for let's just take that number for a second. If all of them bought one box of ammunition, that's a lot that's of boxes million, of shells. Eight, that's a lot that's of right. boxes flying off the shelf. That's right, and firearms, right? Correct. So you have you have that. You have in the United States, even since I started in the eighties, you've had the big three. You've got everybody knows the names. I won't name them. Right. But the big three ammunition manufacturers, and everybody knows the the marketing logos, and everybody has hats and blah blah blah. And I have had hats and clothing and yada yada. And you had one of them file for bankruptcy and turn their machines off. Right. That one being one of the big three, and I'll be totally blatant. Yoki is not one of the big three. Right. Um, that company in itself, and we won't go through all the numbers, but in the United States prior to 2020, the market averaged in consumer purchases about 1.2 billion rounds, and that's rounds, pieces, individual shot shells mm-hmm. per year. One point two billion. That's billion with a that's that's billion with a B. That's with a B. That's correct. Okay. Okay. This manufacturer out of Arkansas, Green, uh, probably averaged about a million cases of shotgun shells into the market every year. That's a million times they, 250. That's correct. Okay. So they were they were and supplying maybe, a major portion of those, and then they closed down, so that's automatically a limited supply coming into the bet. market. They turned their machines off first quarter of 2020. Okay. Used up the surplus through the next few months. Or, uh, when I say surplus, excuse me, that's the wrong terminology. What they had in their warehouses and through the channels. Available inventory. Available inventory. There you go. There's not another, even the other big two, or Fiocchi's, or Rio's, or imports, or whatever, that can up their production enough to sustain 250 million rounds extra in product. So what happened? Second quarter, third quarter of 2020 the supply chain got drained. Right. The shelves are empty now. So fourth quarter 2020, everything that was sold at retail was delivered to the stores coming literally off of machines from the manufacturers. So it was just in in time in that fourth quarter. You bet. As soon as 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 y'all made a shotgun shell, it was on the retail rack at some distributor going into a consumer's hands. You got it. And, and so here we are. And so it's the trying to keep up. And then so you turn around and place a hunting season when everybody says, oh, by the way, I need to go buy shotgun shells. And it starts flying off the shelf faster than the available production can simply get it back restocked on the shelf. Oh, Absolutely. That's that's the very rudimentary sense of it. Sure. And again, that what you just explained is fourth quarter of 2020. And so we're 10 months after that now that we're in October. And of 2021. There, and there hasn't been a reset and we haven't had a large manufacturer open the door and say, hey, we're going we're gonna to fill the gap that that one manufacturer left when they stepped out of the business. Well, they got purchased by one of the other big three 
right? And uh, the ammo side of it, excuse me. But they can't instantly just turn machines on and start producing the numbers that were produced, right? And then the demand is significantly higher. One, you have shotgun shooters have never experienced this in the United States market. Never. Right. Right. They're, even during another previous president's eight years when the ammo demand and gun demand was quite high and he was voted the best salesman. Uh, but you didn't shot see shotgun shells. shells. Shot shells weren't flying off the shelf like the center fires and handguns. No, and not like right. you know, ARs exactly. and all that. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. So, so now then, you throw, if, if I may add, because this is where people don't really see it. They see it on the news, but it doesn't doesn't compute unless they're in manufacturing. Look on the news and you hear all this about the ports being backed up. You see pictures of the port in L.A. with 37 right. ships out in the oh, sea. I mean, the, the, apps not, now, um, the apps now showing our cargo ships that are not able to get unloaded is just... It's it's crazy when you look at how many boats are just spending fuel sitting out there waiting on their turn to get their 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 containers offloaded. Yeah, guess what's in those containers? <laughs> Everything we need. <laughs> hey, exactly. Man, I'm sitting here in between till season and big duck season, and my Can-Am Defender, which is a great machine, my steering box has too much slack in it. And the mechanic working on it says, man, Can-Am doesn't have them. There's not an aftermarket. I've got a machine I can't run on duck hunts waiting on parts to become available. I get it, man. So I don't. it just makes sense that the ammunition industry would face the same challenges to get raw material off of those boats into your manufacturing facilities to get the product out to the market. Exactly. That is exactly part of the problem. Uh, product does not move across the globe the same it did first quarter 2020. I mean, literally, our 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 mother, the what started the Oki, the uh, headquarters, etc., uh, is in Italy. You know, Pioki started in Italy back right. in 1876, I believe. Uh, it used to take us, and we planned accordingly. 30 to 37 days to get a container from south of Italy to the east coast of the United States. Now it's taken about 120 days. Wow. And we all, all consumers, be it shot shells or whatever, we see it. We go to the store, that's not there. This is not there. The shells are not stocked 10 deep like they used to be at the big retail outlets. Um, Yeah. So, so we're not going to see we're not going to see a pallet of steel shot number three sitting in an aisle anytime soon at a uh, discounted price to get it out the door. Is what you're saying? It's going to take a while to no. to overcome this shortage. Excuse me, I'm sorry, I took a drink oh. of water. No, you're no, <laughs> you're, you're fine. You're fine, but uh, and, I mean, and what you've done, you've spoken exactly, and what I hope people understand is all too often we think our hobbies are exempt from some of the challenges that our normal purchasing activities deal with, and what you're saying just proves the point. As, as hard as it is to get chips in a vehicle, I talked to a car dealer the other day that they're waiting on a certain chip to come in for these new trucks so they can absolutely. get those out to market. Uh, you know, you, we're going in our grocery stores and we're going to stumble on items that just aren't well stocked. And it's not because manufacturing is dropping the ball. I know a lot of folks in manufacturing and they are being as creative and strategic as possible right now. I believe the manufacturing of our country is still some of our hardest working folks. But it's just it's it, we can't get the boats unloaded and we don't have as many lines running due to the the changes in the industry. So uh, it's going to be an interesting year just when it comes to the shot shell side of things. Well, it is. And and unfortunately, 
unfortunately, to add, the demand, of course, has not decreased. Sure, sure. And the manufacturers of raw materials are now experiencing shortages and delivery delays. So when you say that, that sounds like, oh, that's not that big a deal. Well, wait a minute. Gunpowder manufacturers now have a shortage on nitrocellulose. Which is a key so they component. Produce right. Of all gunpowder, of all smokeless powder that is used in center fire and or shot shell. And so that is going to continue to cause challenges. Right. In production. Right. And then you throw in, I mean, I'm sorry, but I see it. Everywhere I go in Missouri and when I travel on business, I see it everywhere. The sign hanging in the door at every business. Now hiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our labor shortage. And mm-hmm. it, it, I yeah, mean, la- it's, it's, it's a compounded struggle. and It's a domino effect of multiple things, exactly. And, and you don't have to be an economist. To, to notice these and and what I appreciate is you're just you're just kind of letting folks know that hey the manufacturers I've never known a, a shot shell manufacturer that didn't want to put as many shot shells on the shelf as people wanted to buy that's not the business model that the industry wants they you guys want to supply them you want people to pull the trigger have a good time be safe with them and enjoy the sports whether it's hunting or sporting clays or the vast the vast competitions that involved the shotgun. But I'll tell you this, after listening to your explanation, the old joke that I've used for years in guiding is when we start talking about bullets, is I tell the guys, I only need six. <laughs> you know, the, the <laughs> limit is six. Uh, we better pay attention to that shooting advice and only need six, maybe seven, just to make a box of shells last. That gives three good hunts out of a box of shells instead of having to go through you know, we got the guys to go through a box and a half just on six birds, and they still don't hit many. So if there's ever been a time to refine the shooting skills, it's now just to help a box or a case of shells go longer than they did a couple of years ago. And that's what I hear you say. Get better at shooting so Absolutely. you don't have to waste all your shells. <laughs> well, well, I mean, hey, that that's definitely a part of it. Uh, you know, every manufacturer in the United States doing what they can to uh, spend money and increase production. But we have real challenges, be it in the ammo industry, be it in the lumber industry, be it whatever. Uh, the United States is experiencing challenges that nobody ever dreamed would happen. Yeah. And our and, economy, uh, our, our economy never practiced for these days. And so we're having to make we're having to make inline adjustments for situations we never, we never imagined to take place. Absolutely. Absolutely. You bet. Well, man, well, you you know, I know I've invited you down many a times and, uh, you've always told me, uh, you appreciated the invite to come duck hunting, but if you came this far South, you want to put a rod in your hand to go chase some fish because you get to shoot shotguns enough. So just know the offer still stands. I got plenty of guys here that would love to get you on the boat, man. So if you, if your travels ever get you down to close to this area, uh, this isn't an open invitation for everybody listening to the podcast. I'm speaking right to Brian right now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, man, we, you know, love to see you again. Hope you get down here. But, man, thanks for taking the time just to just to share. In some ways, I love how you, you acknowledge that you've been blessed to be able to work and play in an industry that you are so passionate about. It's one that most guys – have to plan and take off work. Just like me getting to guide duck hunts, people think that's the, you know, duck hunts think that's the dream deal. Well, I'm just in a fortunate situation to be able to do that. But, uh, man, I'm glad you get to, to work in an industry that you love and that you've committed an entire adult life to learning about and uh, for sharing some of those stories and sharing some of that experience. I appreciate you being on the show today. No, thanks for calling. And of course, I know, you know, we go we go back a few years, but sure. Thanks for thinking of me, and you know, and and, and putting up with me not having the time to get on the phone. I, I'm hey, so, I'm, <laughs> I'm thankful. 
you're still a businessman. And so, you know, this, the technologies, especially this podcast world, uh, we'd much rather be sitting face to face, but when we have to make a phone call or a zoom call. That's what the technology is for. So man, if I would tell you this, if you do see Fiocchi out there, the sitting, the sitting, the plug about the sitting, the podcast about Fiocchi, but I promise you, if, if my friend Brian Bourne is working for him, they put out a good shot shell shot plenty of their field shells and uh, their target loads of dove hunting and they've all been well but uh, once again Brian thanks for taking time to hey to share it with folks if I may add something go ahead if I may add something to that one of the biggest things that I learned when I came to work for Fiocchi and being in the industry I, I, I knew but the consumers most of them believe that Fiocchi is a, is a or excuse me, is an imported product. Right. A hundred percent of the shotgun shells that say Fiocchi that are sold in the United States are made in Ozark, Missouri. That's good to know. Yes. They are on machines with United States workers, people we put to work every day. Thank goodness they're there. Sure. Made now, granted, yes, we import some raw materials, of course. Which, well, who doesn't these days, right? But a lot, a lot of people don't realize that. And of course, when they first came over in the 80s, they were importing, but they right. built a wonderful manufacturing facility and put people to work, and we're growing. And uh, you know, we try to make a good product, well, it's that simple. Everybody I've ever heard that put a put one of those shells in their gun was very pleased with how it performed. So, well, good deal. Well, man, I hope everybody listened today. Just you know, you heard something about shotgunning, or just you were reminded that there's shooting centers all around us. Get out there and enjoy the sporting clay. Get out there and uh, throw your hand at that competition because I have some friends that that is their hobby. It's not just the the professional competition like Brian's done, but I know a number of guys. That's what they do for fun. They sign up for competitions and they get a team or individual set together and they go and they shoot together. And so it's a fun, very accessible. Even if you're in the big city, you can find a shooting center to get out to. There's a number in the Houston area I know of I've shot at. And it's a fun and it's it's a worthwhile venture. And so, well, man, well, Brian, and, thanks for, and, go ahead. And to add to that real quick, it's also become over the last 20, 30 years, a great family sport. It has, and I mean, I mean, there's more there's more women shooting clays today than there was in the '80s when I started, tenfold, and right. there's more kids, young kids. I was blessed in the '80s to shoot as a high school kid. I mean, right. there was very few and far between. No, there's, there's high school ladies, four H's are doing shooting things. High school, and, yeah. You know, well, and I'll tell you this: whenever I. Uh, when Wade started shooting birds, we didn't start out shooting a dove. We called a friend of ours, Robbie Woodard, who shoots a lot of sporting clays. And, man, we went out and we got on a range. And we did a five stand. And that's exactly where he learned how to pull a trigger on a moving target. And then we transitioned to the field. And so it's a it's, it's a very good introduction before you have to get to the actual hunt. And it's affordable. Most places, you can find a place that's very economical yeah. to get out and shoot around. So. Well, man, well, it's a great place to teach safety and everything. You bet. You just nailed it. Absolutely. That's a good deal. Well, man, it was good to have you on. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for everybody who listens to Texas Podcast and Blast. Once again, we're just trying to get good stories and practical information on how we can do better in the outdoors. And if you've ever picked up a shotgun, I can promise you the guy, uh, this, this Brian Bourne's fellow that's on with us today, he's done it more than any of us. And I always appreciate hearing anything he tells us to, to be more successful doing it. So, well, Brian, thanks for being on. And, man, we will talk soon. And everybody, thanks for joining us on this episode of Texas Podcast and Blast. We're down Texas. We're down Texas.